Welcome, 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 welcome. It is episode two of the Simon Dan podcast. We're up and running. Um, Katz and I had a great chat in the first episode. Uh, hope you'll uh, check that one out and enjoyed it. Uh, today we're, we've got a special guest with us today, but uh, before we speak to them, we're going to bring in Katz again, my, my ever loyal co-host Katz. How you doing, matey? I'm, I'm very good, and I'm really looking forward to this one. I'll not spoil the surprise of, of who it is, but I'm, I'm, I am very much looking forward to this one. So, good. Uh, well done on, on landing it. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I have to say that I'm in, I'm not in a in a great mood because uh, I went for a run today, and I got shouted at by a woman for the first time ever. Can you believe it? What What were you doing? I, I, well, what I've got like a my watch has got like a map on it, and um, so I'm following this map. I don't know where I am, like in the middle of nowhere, and the paths are sometimes quite close together. I took the wrong turn. It went down this woman's drive, which is like out in the country. So it's quite a big drive. And uh, she started shouting at me and, and I, you know, I was like, I'm really sorry, but you know, she was berating me saying, oh, you're, you're lucky the dogs aren't here. And so I just ran off. Uh, bearing in mind, this is 15 miles into like a long run. So I'm absolutely knackered. So yeah, that put me in a bit of a bad mood. So uh, how's your week been anyway? It's, that's, that's been all right, mate. I, um, yeah, no, I've been, I've, I've been fine. I've not got myself in any bother this week. I've not been running down anyone's drive or it was not a sign like size like private property or anything like that. Was there a sign? No, there's no signs. No, no. Yeah. But if you go out, on, if you go out on a run like that, you tend to find that a lot of the trails are like near people's houses and through farms and stuff. So it's just normal anyway. But I don't know. I was just, I was just a bit, but a bit annoyed by it. But hey, um, anyway. I feel like I owe you a bit of an apology, Cats, uh, because we've got this thing. We mentioned last week, didn't we, that you sport Blackburn Rovers. Um, and I, I've i got this little habit where I find Cats live at any point on YouTube. So I, fi- I find him live and, I, and I'll and i set myself up in the chat and I'll, and I'll say, I've got a question for Cats. And, and the host normally finds me and says, oh, Dan's got a question. And it's normally some sort of, of loaded question regarding how poor Blackburn is, isn't it? I feel like I keep putting you off. I'm sorry about that, mate. I, I thought I had no, to get it out there. It, it, it's all right, mate. I mean, it was it was it was all right until last week when uh, when I, I was recording the didn't match I? to watch it afterwards and you spoiled yeah. the, the result for yeah. me. That was that hurt more than anything else. But um, you know, never mind. I, I can I can live with it. I've been a Blackburn fan for long enough. Mate. I can stop. I can, I can stop doing it. It's just you know, I don't go finding <laughs> you. I don't fi- go out and find you just off in the off chance. It's our thing. I like it, mate. Yeah. It's, you know, it's our thing. You, well, you, you keep up with it. One day I'll, I'll just block you from the yeah. channel next time. <laughs> one day I'll ask you an actual question, you know, one that's <laughs> relevant to the to the debate you're in. Okay, right. So let's bring in our let's bring in our guest. Um so the guest this week, she definitely knows her way around a galaxy or two, that's for sure. Uh, she's an astrophysicist at Christchurch at the University of Oxford and runs a very successful YouTube channel named after her lovely self. It is of course Dr. Becky. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm still reeling from the fact that Katz is a Blackburn fan because oh. I'm a Bolton fan. Ooh. I feel like I shouldn't have brought that up fact, in this because right. you're just going to rip me for it. Katz but... is going to drop out in a minute. Anyone anyone who's not aware, um, anyone who's from America or anything, Bolton and Blackburn is, is a not the biggest rivalry, but it's, it's a fair rivalry, I would say, wouldn't you? Is that, is that a fair yeah. It's, it's it's known, definitely known. Uh, yeah. but my, uh, my 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 wife's a Bolton fan, so I get plenty Oof. of that. I've got a soft, oh, soft right. spot for Bolton for that. So. Right. Oh, I, I, hey, I, I'm a Southampton fan, and and the majority of my friends are Pompey fans, so I'm I know I know the pain. Uh, anyway, Becky, um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's great to have you. Um, so you are an astrophysicist at the University of Oxford. Tell us a little bit about your position. 
Yeah, so I'm what's called a postdoc at Oxford. So essentially that means I have done my doctorate degree, my PhD, and I'm now doing research. It means I'm not quite yet a professor. So there's a lot of people online that are like, oh, professor, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, stop <laughs> stop giving me a promotion. I'm not a professor yet. Um, I don't have like a, a permanent job. I'm just hired by the university for a couple of years to do some research. The research that I want to do that I've said to them, you know, you've got this pot of money that you can pay researchers with. This is the stuff I want to do. Do you want to hire me? And they said yes, which was great. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I spend my days basically um, thinking uh, about the universe. Essentially, I, the role of a scientist is to answer questions we don't know the answer to. And I collect data with telescopes and I analyze that data. And then I write up my findings uh, in a journal article that's published to the world. And, and that's sort of the nice cycle of things. I don't really have a general day to day, but it's definitely a, a cycle of going to telescopes, coming back, analyzing data, writing a paper, going back to telescopes. <laughs> it's really fun. Well, I, it, I saw your uh, video on the, on the a day in the life of an astrophysicist and on your YouTube channel. And I have to say that is a, a brilliant channel. I watch it quite a lot. The first time I ever heard of you was uh, Fraser Kane asked me to do a Q&A for uh, his channel and he as a as an example video he sent me your Q&A that you did for him oh, so nice. as, a, as a thing that he was kind of thing he was looking for and that's when I first kind of discovered you um, and funny enough we'll talk about it in a bit but you did you did a video this week which is quite relevant to what cats and I do but we'll talk about that in a bit but yeah um, how do you find YouTube your, your channel yeah I mean I love it like I love that people are as keen about space and astronomy as I am. Like, I feel like I've like found my people that would just want to chat about it all the time, um, which is great. And the fact that that many people want to hear from, you know, a scientist that's doing the research themselves, that's always what I wanted to be for people. Like the tagline of the channel is your friendly neighborhood astrophysicist. You know, it's all the questions you never able to Google, you know, you can ask me kind of thing. And if if I can get a chance to get to it, I will. Um, and, And I just really enjoy it. I just love having that connection with people. And I think that's what's so great about youtube is that it does put you in in touch with people that you would never have found otherwise oh, com- you know? completely, I mean, that's what's so complete, great. completely agree i mean i would never have i would never have found the, this good man here cats uh mm-hmm. if it wasn't for youtube uh cats is is uh what tell us tell us a bit about your qualifications again cats what your what's your background well, my background was um, I, my, my degree, my master's degree were in the biological sciences, but I'm a, I'm a science teacher for a profession. I've been for, for 20 years. And, and when I landed in my first teaching role, um, it was as a, as a physics teacher. So I spent the last 20 years teaching physics, you know, up to A level, et cetera. And I love it. I love when we get around to the, the uh, you know, astronomy side and astrophysics side of, of the A level stuff. And obviously, you know, you've probably forgotten more in the past five minutes than I've ever known about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of that, but I'm fascinated. The kids love it. It's it just it really grabs the attention, doesn't it? Yeah, and I wish they wish the curriculum didn't wait till till A level till seventeen, eighteen. I wish that we did it more at like eleven and twelve because I think that's the the era when kids are most curious. You I was, know? Ju- I was can, just going to say can that really get them with space stuff because that that is I mean. Absolutely. It raises more questions than it answers, right? Sometimes. So. Yeah, I, was, I think from memory, cats. We, unless you're doing a, a specific GCSE in physics, you don't really do much on space, do you? Key, the key stage three curriculum. Um, I mean, different schools vary. You know, you learn about the planets, etc. But you're right. Certainly, with the the main AQA specification, unless you're doing triple science, yeah, yeah. physics is a standalone. 
you, you don't hardly do it. anything. It's a shame, real yeah. shame. Yeah, I is. think it's because like examples have decided it's just too hard for kids of that age, and I'm like, it's not fair. Let let kids make their own decision on what's like too hard and what's not too hard. You well, know, like I think it's interesting enough to grab them that they'll actually want to put the effort in to understand it. Absolutely, so. I, I've tutored a couple of kids who went to private schools and they did GCSEs in astronomy, and they were the the, the kids that I tutored were fantastic at it they really got a good grasp of it and I, I reckon you just got to give those kids a chance who might want to learn in that in the in GCSE to actually learn it because I as, from what I can remember it's a bit about redshift uh a bit about um the start of the universe I, I don't know if there's anything on planets is there well so we don't have the, G, the astronomy GCSE no the just the normal si- uh, space stuff in in double science Steady state versus Big Bang theory. Yeah, um, yeah CMB redshift. The, 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 there's no difficult maths. Uh, no. I think they mentioned Hubble's constant, but not not how you calculate it no, or anything like that. Not, so no. yeah, it's, the maths is dumbed down for the, for the for the physics. Yeah, it's still the topics, which is good. I always like to class astronomy as a gateway science. Yes. Like, if you can hook the kids with space early on, they'll all become engineers or whatever it is later. But at least, at least you hook them with space first. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> loves space. Everyone loves space. So, Becky, you um you focus on uh, low redshift galaxy evolution. Now, for the purpose mm. of the audience, I think I'm correct in saying here that that would be galaxies that are not receding too fast. Is that right? Yeah, and are therefore a lot closer to us. Okay, cool. So, could you explain a bit why you decided to focus on those? yeah sure it's funny that you say that like oh you, you know you read it out like oh you you study low redshift galaxy evolution studies that's really how i'd introduce myself like a fellow astrophysicist that you'll find that they, we do this like we introduce ourselves with like what redshift are you are you low redshift are you nearby <laughs> stuff are you high redshift like far away stuff yeah what wavelength are you are you optical are you infrared are you x-ray are you gamma ray like and then like what do you what object do you study so i'm like low redshift optical galaxies Right, right. Got <laughs> like nearby visible light galaxies and i think the, the main reason for that is just i like to be able to really see the shapes of galaxies that i'm studying you know i don't want yeah. some fuzz blobs that are <laughs> you know billions of light years away that i can't really see the shape of and get a grasp of and you know those beautiful images that you get from the hubble space telescope that's what really drew me into science as a kid and space as a kid as well so when i got to the the level where i was deciding okay what are you going to spend not just the next four years of your life doing during a phd but probably the next sort of your career's worth of life doing it was a bit of a no-brainer for me i just wanted to be able to understand galaxies better what shapes they were you know you see the shapes of galaxies you see these beautiful spiral shapes you see these weird blob-ish sort of very round shapes and then you see even the weird and wonderful things that are either torn apart or there's even the penguin galaxy. It looks like a penguin. Like just do yourself a favor and go Google penguin galaxy. It's the best thing you'll see all day. And like just trying to understand why galaxies are the shape they are, how they've evolved to be that way, how they interact with the supermassive black holes at the center of them as well. And whether the shape governs that at all. That's just something that I I was so drawn in by more so than cosmology which i know draws in a lot of people the idea of the big bang and understanding yeah. how the universe started sure. cosmology's data is really boring like it looks t- <laughs> it just looks so boring <laughs> and i was like nah i want to work with the data that you know when i'm analyzing an image on my computer if someone walks by they want to stop and go like whoa what's that that looks amazing you know and 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 that's 
really why I'm there because the shape is so interesting because it, it essentially encodes the history of a galaxy. So if something is a beautiful spiral shape now, like in the universe, very close by, it means that it's pretty much been left alone its entire life. It's yeah. been able to stay that beautiful, pristine spiral shape. But if it's instead like a circular blob now, then we know that in its history, it's probably merged with something, another galaxy. And that's ruined the spiral shape and it's destroyed it. And so you can pick out what kind of galaxies you want to study, like what kind of history they've had just by picking out their shape. And that fascinates me. I think it's really cool. So you gave a little insight into our future there, didn't you? Is that, is that what we're going to end up at as a blob? Yeah. Um, so the Milky Way is going to merge with Andromeda yeah. in the next four or five billion years or something. Uh, and in that process, essentially all that beautiful spiral structure in both the Milky Way and Andromeda will be torn apart by the gravitational yeah. interaction. So basically everything, all the angular momentum and energy will get redistributed. And so instead of being on really nice sort of circular-ish orbits around the center of the galaxy and that flat disk, we're essentially going to end up on what I like to describe as like a beehive, right? Everything will still be orbiting the center, but it'll be doing so chaotically, you know, in all different yeah. planes and directions that it will be like sort of like a beehive of stars is what we're going to end up with, which is a big blob what? of stars. <laughs> Would that be damaging? Like, because my daughter was asking me this the other day. She'd seen on TV, you know, Andromeda and the Mooka when she said, Dad, if we were alive when that happened, you know, and I know, you know, obviously it takes a very long time. What would it be like? And I didn't have a clue what to say. Like, would, would it be something you'd notice? Or like, uh, if you were if you were on a planet, would you would you feel something happening different? Or, you know, what, what would it actually look like? I don't think you'd ever feel something on a planet happening different. You'd be able to see it in the sky for definite. Andromeda would just be getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. And the night sky would just get brighter and brighter as these stars got closer to us. Until eventually, you know, the number of stars in the sky would, would just far outnumber whatever we see at the minute. Um, <clears throat> in terms of what would happen to the planet, though, um, I mean, it depends what happens to the sun, basically. Whether the sun will still be alive in five billion years or so is one mm. question. Let's assume it is. Um, the one thing that always surprises people is that no two stars collide in a galaxy merger or collision, just because space is, is just so big. The probability is just so small because literally the cross section of how much of the space in a galaxy is star and not empty space is just massive, right? If you think about an atom, right? When we talk about the nucleus is is, is such a tiny amount in yeah. the actual space of an atom. It's like 99% of an atom's empty space. Similar thing with a galaxy. So no two stars will collide. It's just where we'll get flung by the gravitational forces. So you can see in these either simulations or pictures of mergers going on, you see these big like streams of stars that have been pulled out and off the galaxy. Um, we could end up in one of those, like way, way out. Or, or we could end up being flung towards the center um, in this redistribution of energy. We could sort of like sink to, to where it's getting heaviest in the center. Um, and if that happens, you know, like way out in intergalactic space, we're going to be not very well protected from sort of cosmic rays and all these big, all these very dangerous things in terms of life. But then as you get close to the center, you've then probably got a very active black hole after a merger as well, because yeah. it's being fed. So that's going to be throwing off huge amounts of radiation too. So both prospects don't look great. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, so you can tell, so you can tell your daughter cats that it's not good news, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh thanks for that cool um it's interesting you mentioned the uh the shape of uh of galaxies well, during my studies i learned quite extensively at the beginning about hubble's fork diagram mm -hmm. which of course is a general guide on how galaxies evolve can you see that changing in the future as you and others 
continue the, this sort of research or is that something that is pretty much set in stone now? I think it will always be used and always be taught, but it has already changed. In fact, work that I did last year with the Galaxy Zoo team has revised it slightly. So it nice. has been revised over the past sort of 20, in the 20th century. It was revised by De Vokler. He came up with an even more intricate way of classifying things much more detailed. So Hubble just essentially had, you know, how round is a galaxy? Yeah. And then if it's a spiral shape, does it have a bar first of all? And this is where the fork comes from. The bar galaxies go down one end and the normal spiral galaxies go down the other fork. And then along the fork, it's basically how, how tightly wound are your spiral arms? Are they very loose or are they very tight? And then also Hubble added into that, okay, in a spiral galaxy, you have this very central bulge of stars as well, um, which is sort of like a mini version of the, of the very round elliptical blob. So if you have a merger with something that's a lot smaller than you, essentially you just form a little bulge in the center, but keep your spiral arms on the outside. And so Hubble said, okay, let's classify them as the things with the really big bulge with very tightly wound arms on one side, and then the things with very tiny bulges with very loosely wound arms. I think because back then they thought that spiral galaxies were sort of winding in on themselves and slowly winding up over time, which has been proved false uh, now. And so that's how we classify them. And that's sort of been the given for for many decades because if you think about back in Hubble's day, he was classifying like, a handful of yeah, galaxies yeah, is what he was working yeah. with, maybe a hundred if he was lucky. Um, but now we have surveys of the sky that have have observed a million galaxies. The question is how you then classify them because computers aren't great at this yet. They're still lagging behind like humans actually doing the work. They're getting a lot better, but they're still lagging behind. So a decade ago, we actually had um, a big project called Galaxy Zoo, which is still running. It's a website where you get the public to actually classify real scientific data. In this case, it was images of galaxies that had basically been sat on a computer archive for years because there wasn't enough astronomers to actually eyeball them all and say that's a spiral or that's a that's a blob. Oh, is that a bit like um, the where the where you're looking for exoplanets? That website. Yeah, you're looking it's for the, the exact dip, same site. Dip, yeah, yeah awesome. so. So Galaxy Zoo started it and then all these astronomers turned around and went, oh my gosh, I have the same problem. I took far too much data. And so the Exoplanets project was also spawned off that. It's yeah. now this whole um, collection of projects called the Zooniverse, everything from space to historical research to penguins in Antarctica. There's just all sorts on there. It's, nice. it's great. Kids love it, especially. Um, and they're actually contributing to science, which yeah. is great. Uh, but off the back of this, it meant that we could classify with Galaxy Zoo all the galaxies and get classifications for how tightly wound their spiral arms were and how big their blobs were in the center. And so last year, back in 2019, um, myself along with the Galaxy Zoo team published a paper that actually showed that that correlation that Hubble just assumed actually doesn't exist. And the majority of galaxies actually have very small bulges, but very tightly wound arms, which is sort of the opposite of what Hubble said. And that's where the majority of them lie. And so we're already sort of revising it and saying, actually, when you look at the population as a whole, you know, that's what you find. And that kind of data just wasn't available to Hubble. It's not that he was wrong. It's just that he didn't have the full picture yet. Of course. So obsolete soon then? Is that... (laughs) I don't think it'll be obviously, like I said, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a great, um, yeah. it's a great it's starting a great framework. Tool, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so how much do we, how much do we really know about other galaxies? I mean, we know loads about mm. our own, but how much do we know? Or more importantly, how much more is there to learn about other I galaxies? Think, 
I mean, I always say this, I think there's more that we don't know than we yeah. do know. And you said we know a lot about our own. There's still a lot we don't know yeah, about our yeah. own either. You know, we know more maybe, but yeah. there's so much we don't know. You know, we don't know how galaxies end up stop forming stars properly and what like the dominant way they do that. We know they do stop forming stars because a load of like what we call red and dead galaxies out there, yeah. uh, as opposed to sort of the very blue star forming spirals that we see. And we don't know if, if the black hole plays a big enough role in that. Like uh, theoretical simulations have been saying for ages that the supermassive black hole in the center has to shut down star formation. Otherwise, all our models break down. But we've really not observed that happening yet. I'm trying to find observational evidence of that. That's what I'm doing as part of my my job. Um, we still don't know, you know, how, how many different types of stars all form in galaxies. We don't know when they form the majority of their stars. <laughs> we don't know how even spiral arms form. We have two different mechanisms that we can simulate them forming by, but we don't know which one actually happens in the real universe. And there's still big arguments about that. There's, there's so many things. It's such an active area of research. And, you know, it might not be the most glamorous anymore because you've got exoplanets, you know, finding water on exoplanets and taking everyone's attention away yeah. you've got cosmology having all of their crisis where they you know are finding <laughs> things that don't agree all the time and yeah. i'm like yeah but galaxies is where it's at we got the pretty pictures <laughs> like come to us you know so i love it i think it's great if if there's if there's things that you you were saying that um, we don't know the answer to okay if you could wake up tomorrow yeah. and have the answer to one of the questions that you were trying to ask in your job like Ooh. what what would that question be that you'd want the answer to that's a big question. Um, I almost wouldn't want to wake up tomorrow and it just be answered because I kind of, it's like, you know, the lead up to Christmas is almost sometimes more fun than, than actual yeah, Christmas. Yeah. Like it's that kind of thing. Like the doing and finding out the answer is is the exciting part. If someone just told me, it almost wouldn't be as fun. Um, but I, I guess what, I actually would probably pick something that's not my area of research. I would probably pick, you know, like what is dark matter? That would be great if we could just know that already. Oh, like, come big, on, particle physicists, yeah. we've waited long enough. Yeah. Um, you know, we've so much astronomical evidence that it exists. So many different areas, so many different fields of research. It has to be there. We just need to know what it actually is made of in terms of a particle. Um, my research, I'd probably say that this this answer of, you know, are supermassive black holes actually affecting galaxies in terms of are they are they putting energy back into a galaxy that stops a galaxy from forming stars like i would love to know if that's actually happening because if it isn't happening then our best model of the universe needs revising yeah. because without that process it doesn't work that's, i mean for, for me that is, I, I mean i love i love i've always loved learning about galaxies and i know as you say cosmology is a, is a is a is a bit of a a, a a dodgy one at the moment in terms of how they're coming up with things and and I, I mean I don't know what it's like for you cats but when I mean you, you when you teach uh, a level physics how interested do you find they are about the galaxy stuff for the kids I honestly find that when when I'm taking an A level physics class, the first thing they ask is because of all check the specification before they they've opted for the course. The very first thing they ask is when are we doing the space the space stuff? Yeah. When are we doing space stuff? Um, so yeah, they, they, there's very very few. nobody ever says when are we going to learn about Young's modulus? Nobody ever <laughs> asks that. <laughs> when are we doing the double slit experiment? Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, when do we do that? No, when are we doing space, pendulums? When are we doing the space stuff? Yeah. 
Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, Becky, I mean, you you know what I do. You know what what, yeah. what my thing. Cats does the same. We're, we're an honourable job, guys. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you very much. One conspiracy theorist at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and. But we want to know how much experience you've had with conspiracies concerning space. For example, did you know that some people think space doesn't exist at all? Yeah, I've heard about this. And it's essentially like Flat Earth has got tired of us actually using logic against them. So they came up with the most illogical argument they possibly could, basically. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they won't have us. They won't have them being a flat disk in space. There's just <laughs> no space. That's that, that's how they that's how they solve that one. <laughs> Um, it's it's a crazy crazy world. Is it, have you had any other experience of anything else other than anti space? Uh, I remember the first conspiracy theory that I ever heard about or came across. Like, was I was in year nine and it was my English teacher in year nine. Um, like talked about how she, and she challenged something that I'd said about the moon landing. And she was like, "How do you even know that we landed on the moon?" And oh. I was like, "Because we did." <laughs> And then she was like, no, there's this whole conspiracy that we didn't. And I, that was the first time I'd ever heard about it. And I remember going away and reading it and almost feeling myself sucked in and sort of like this this 14-year-old that was impressionable. And then just going, eh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, and just realizing how ridiculous they all sounded, you know, describing it and coming up with these little things and realizing that it all came from a from a misunderstanding of the physics, essentially. You know, and I think Absolutely. that's the majority of conspiracy theories stem from, right? It's that oh, yeah. I don't understand it, therefore something else must be going on. Exactly. Not mm. that there are things out there that you don't understand. And I almost think that's the first thing that you realize as a scientist is that there are so many things that we don't mm. understand and that's a that's almost a good thing yeah. because now we can figure them out and we can learn stuff and i wonder whether it stems from like and no shade here to science teachers at all cats but i wonder if it stems <laughs> from like how science is taught at school like it's taught like here are the facts and these are the facts that you should learn rather than like here's how we figured this out because this hasn't mm. always been known you know you almost learn it as if this is like humans for eternity have been learning this by rote because it's always been known and it, you know it's almost like i think the fun bit is actually figuring out how like the process of figuring it out and then like teaching people that process of, of how we figured it out and giving them an understanding of how long science takes as well and i think that's really been highlighted during the pandemic as well that people are like we should know this and it's like no science takes time like i can't believe we have already got a vaccine in the space of what nine months Crazy, maybe yeah that's ridiculous yeah. to me but yeah. people are like you know going come on come on where is it and you know that science could take 10 years you know 50 years yeah. to come to any form of conclusion and 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 like i think that's the, almost like the instant gratification monkey that's inside of everyone you know yeah. gets i, I often gratification from conspiracy theories yeah I often cite Richard Feynman who said that he was at the end of a 400 year journey. So it's very difficult to just say, this is what it is. I need to go build, 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 yeah. build before I can tell you anything. Mm. It's interesting you said about the moon landing one because 21% um, of British people think that it was faked. Does that surprise you then now you what you've after your story from the English? Yeah, twenty one percent. Twenty one percent one in five. I didn't think it was that high. I would have probably guessed it was that high in the States, just from like mistrust of government. Oh, I'd say it was higher than that in the States. I'd say it was forty ish percent. I mean, you that's crazy. You yeah. But, yeah, I mean in the UK I credit half of it stems from just a sort of dislike of Americans, probably. <laughs> probably. Um but yeah, I, I just don't get it. I, I mean the, the first thing is like who do you think would have been benefited the most from telling people that they didn't land on the moon. Russia and China, do you think? And yet 
know like they're all yeah. they know that, that yeah. we landed on that america landed on the moon so it's we know that humanity landed on the moon it's not yeah it baffles my mind that people can fall down that thing and i think again it's from a misunderstanding of like what you need to know to get to the moon like you just need like grab like newton's gravity even yeah. to get to the moon and you need something that can basically just gives you thrust you need yeah, thrust and newton's yeah. gravity and that's it and yeah you could do that with you know three astronauts that were incredibly incredibly brave and you know the the tiniest of computer even if it was most yeah. people just doing the calculations by hand yeah. you know you could get to the moon and and like that's all you need just a little bit of guts and courage to do it right and and people are so in disbelief that that could be done with so little tech you know, I think that's where it, almost the disbelief stems from. Yeah, and I think mm. I think Kat's going to agree with me on this one. One of the things that we find so abhorrent about it all is the uh, the, the the fact that they will say that things are fake. For example, the uh, the space shuttle that exploded, they will say that mm. the astronauts are still alive yeah, that, because horrific. they found like, people that have the same names and look a little bit like them. Mm. All easily debunkable, but it's yeah, it's not it's not nice in any way shape or form yeah exactly the other thing that gets me is that people are more willing to believe that they had like the technology to fake it yeah than they did to actually send people to the moon and it's it was actually easier in the 1960s to send people to the moon than to try and fake it exactly they had and that's the tech they didn't have yeah absolutely right there's a really good video i think from a, a photographer i can't remember the name of the channel who said about how difficult it would have been back then to fake the how you know exactly mm. what went on on the moon um so i mean cats and i do a flat earth as weekly on our channel what do you what do you think of the flat earth gang um i'm almost like sad and disappointed in them that makes me sound like a parent like i'm disappointed <laughs> doesn't it but like have you, i mean you must have seen the netflix documentary yes uh, yes on, yeah, on earth, yeah. Oh, seen and i remember one, yeah. i remember watching that and and being like, oh, come on, you're so, you're so nearly there. You can see them almost following the scientific process in yeah. designing experiments that, and, and coming up with a hypothesis to test. It's just that moment of when the evidence shows them something that doesn't align with their worldview and with their emotions that are tied to this hypothesis, that they don't, they don't change you know, their worldview. And it, no. it's that thing that is the missing bit, right? In science, you you have to be almost detached, which is difficult because when you do spend your life, you know, like uh, studying something specific, but you have to follow the scientific process. And that point is always looking at what the evidence shows you. And if the evidence is against your hypothesis, you have to redefine your hypothesis. That's the yeah. basics of science. It's how science moves forward. And you can see them registering the evidence, but not doing that last step and it i i just kind of think well what happened that you became so attached to this idea that you're not willing to do that and there and like what could you have done in science otherwise you you know what i mean if you have yeah. this mind that yeah, can design these crazy yeah. experiments to test this what else could you have done you know like Cats, that's why i'm disappointed in it yeah cats always says that they do the experiments and then they come up with their own um physics laws to to, to explain them <laughs> don't they that's, with, yeah. with, they, what's they the do, one they? The, the, the laws that they come up with are, are unbelievable some of the things that they i mean my favorite is what they'll film a boat going over their yeah, horizon that's it, yeah. and then invent something called compression or the ether band which is <laughs> Some optical effect that nobody in the universe understands, but it's what causes boats to disappear uh, bottom up as you go over the horizon. And um, 
I mean, and I wish I was joking with that. I wish I was joking, but I'm not, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. What gets me though, is that like, I know it sort of stems from this, like, oh, I, I, when I look at the earth, it looks flat, you know? And it's like, I only believe what my eyes see kind of thing. Yeah. And it's like, that's what makes them question it in the first place. But I'm like, why don't they question like, you know, that the human body is made of molecules and atoms, you know, like what, that you can't see those. All you see is sort of a solid object. So I don't understand why it's specifically flat earth and not like any other thing that you, you can't see, you know, the fact that water is made of H2O. Yeah. Well, I, like, that, uh, you, do you know what I mean? It's like, wh- where does this come from? There, the, you say that, but there is a conspiracy. One of the first things that cats tackled oh, was God. that water was not made of H2O. What is it oh, they said? God. I can't believe that. It was, it was water was a, was an element. An element. That's it. Was it. Even yeah. Name. yeah. Aquium. That's it. Aquium. <laughs> Where does that even stem from? Oh dear! So, there's a there's a conspiracy in everything. There really there really is. Um, it just the funny thing is that like um, I remember a couple of years back uh, when I when I used to work at the University of Nottingham with Mike Merrifield and people like that from the you know sixty symbols people might know him from. Um, I remember he, he we had a great chat one lunchtime and he was saying I've been called up by a BBC radio station this morning asking me to go on. Um, you know, to and because they, they have to be impartial, they didn't just get him to comment on whatever story it was. They also got a flat earther on, and he basically just was like, "I had to spend half an hour just replying to this BBC producer." I think it was BBC. Maybe I'm throwing them under the bus here, but this BBC producer yeah. saying like, "I will not legitimize this as a debate. You yeah. do not have to be impartial yeah. to something that has been known for four thousand years." Like, you know, and it's, it's just crazy that, that you get to that level, uh, and you even have to explain it to, to someone who, who should know better, you know? Um, but that, that's the point that you're in and you constantly get the, the, you know, this sort of pushback from the, the flat of the community, if they want to call themselves about being like, oh, scientists won't debate with us. And it's because it's just not a debate. Why would we waste our time? You know, it'd be like you know as having a, a debate about whether the sun will rise like what's the point it's gonna rise yeah <laughs> it's yeah. a waste of time well, i mean these guys do uh, some of the debunkers do do debates with the flat earthers and it's always a, an, an absolute annihilation and they can never accept a loss mm. can they cats when they get beaten it's, in these debates uh... they're incredible to watch and sometimes you know, they think they've won don't they sometimes they genuinely think they've won the debate when it's clear that they were, were trounced. Well, you can present to them. Uh, I mean, my my favourite thing I, I, at the minute is the uh, Yotvos effect. You can you can present to them, you know, real measurable things to show us or rotation, etc. And it doesn't matter what you tell them, because you've told them over a computer screen, and maybe you've shown them a diagram. All their take home message from that is, you've just shown me a diagram. Yeah. So therefore, that's not proof. Means it's only nothing. a diagram. Yeah. It's, it's only words over a screen. You're not yeah. showing anything. And thinking, why are we having the conversation? Oh, yeah. I have the best one, actually. I remember it was right as I started my PhD, and I and I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe engage one and see what happens. Error. Um, <laughs> but I remember them asking, like, they were like, I want to see a video of your Earth that's supposedly round, like rotating in space. And I was like okay, here's, here's, you know, a a time-lapse from the Discover satellite, which is in one of the Lagrangian points between the sun and earth. It's constantly pointing at earth. And there you can see it's rotating. He's like, I don't want a time-lapse. I want a movie. And I'm like, well, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. 
And he was like, no, a time lapse is just images played in quick succession. <laughs> and I was like, what? What do you think a movie is? Um, I don't think it would have mattered. They would have cried fake. They would have cried fake. Whatever you show them, they'll cry fake. Yeah. CGI fake. There's nothing you can show them. Yeah. Short of, exactly. I would even suggest that if you took them up into space, that they would argue that the curve in their helmet is causing the earth to be curved. Mm. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm. Right. Okay. We're going to, we're going to play our little game. Uh, we're going to play our game called guess the conspiracy. <laughs> I'm Hang on. I've got a jingle. I've got a jingle. <laughs> so ethereal it's so beautiful. yeah it's lovely isn't it so this is the part of the show where cats and i try and trick our guest um so what's going to happen is i'm going to uh give dr becky three conspiracies one is real and two are completely fabricated by cats and i so the idea is that cats and i believe that we're so entrenched in the conspiracy world that we can come up with conspiracies that uh could potentially be real so I'm excited. For okay, this. okay, so we'll give, we'll give you three, and then we'll then we'll let you think about it, and you can talk through. I them, mean, like. the two aren't real now, but watch like two cults. Oh, I know. I did think about this. I thought about this when I was with. when I was planning. I was like, someone's going to grab hold of these. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Uh, so, number one, the speed of light is not a universal constant, as humans are the only beings to use numbers. That's the first first conspiracy. The second one. Absorption lines in spectra are evidence that aliens are trying to communicate with us using some sort of code that we haven't figured out yet. I hope that one's real. And the third one, the second law of thermodynamics dictates that a vacuum cannot be next to an atmosphere. Right. So there's your three. <laughs> what do you think? What's... Well, first impressions. Okay. Uh, so the first one, I know there is a weird conspiracy about the fact that the speed of light it has the same numbers in it as the coordinates for like the pyramids of there is there is a conspiracy uh, Egypt or something like yeah, that something and like, it's yeah. just like it's a coincidence our yeah. numbers are a construct like i know so i can imagine that that could be real because it could stem from something like that but the fact that like what did you say it was because numbers don't exist because because more? human beings are the only beings to use numbers so it's not a universal constant because no one else out there will understand it because we are the only ones that use numbers yeah, but even though we don't use... No, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try that route. Um, <laughs> number two, I really want to exist. Like, I would love... Because I use absorption spectra all the time, yeah. so I would love it if there was some alien code in there that I've just been missing for the past 10 years or so. Um, the fact that it's always at the same wavelengths, like, why am I trying to logic this? It's a conspiracy theory. It would never make sense in the first place. Um, what was the third one? The, the vacuum. The, thir the third the one is that the second law of thermodynamics dictates that there cannot be a vacuum next to an atmosphere. But you just have a gradient, and true. Oh, true. that that definitely sounds like something that someone's completely misunderstood the physics for. So, are you going with that one? I'm tempted to. I, I want number two to exist. I want number two to be real, but I don't think it's number two. One, I'm like that could be. But I think it's a bit tenuous. So I'm going to go with number three because that sounds like something that stemmed from somebody's misunderstanding and has become a conspiracy, which is basically my definition of a science conspiracy. Cats, cats, we need to do better, mate. <laughs> well done. Well, very well done. Yeah, so that is that is actually uh, one of the key arguments from a flat earther who uh, who 
claims that space isn't real because of the fact that there's a second law of thermodynamics. And obviously they have the notion that gravity isn't real so therefore, oh, yes. it can't be a, can't can't a, be a gradient. In the so, so yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a tricky one, that one. But yeah, so Katz and I created the other two. <laughs> so well done. It's 1-0 to the get. We need to do better, buddy, because there's some mm-hmm. there's some high-caliber guests coming well, on that we're going to have to... No, so we'll put, put Paul through, but I think, I think getting that right, that Dr. Becky was talking about not quite being a professor yet, but I think we should award her oh, absolutely. with a professorship. <laughs> Honorary professorship, yeah. Puzzle we, we gave her. Yeah. I think I think that's it. Go back to work tomorrow and yeah. just tell them. Yeah. Got it. I, I, I got. I guess the conspiracy on the Simon Dan podcast. <laughs> I am now an honorary <laughs> professor. That's what you got to say. Anyway, thank you very much, Doctor Becker. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, I, I hope really you fun. enjoyed what it. A great way to end a science day, just with a, a fun chat. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Me and Katz had a great chat last week. Um, so yeah that uh, hopefully everyone's obviously checked that one out already okay but uh that's it we're done so thank you very much cats thank you very much dr becky and we'll see you all soon goodbye